Hello, and welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Craig Dale, the Head of Policy and Research at Commonweal. Everyone cares, or needs to care, or will need care at some point in their life, possibly all three. In the wake of the pandemic, we saw Scotland start the process of trying a different way of delivering care in Scotland. Having seen the problems caused by fragmented care, lack of resources, lack of support, and the harvesting of money by profit-making companies, some of whom are based in tax havens. We've had to transform care in the same way that health was transformed after World War II and the launch of the NHS. Commonweal has argued that a national care service should be publicly owned, locally delivered, free at the point of care, and not for profit. The Scottish Government's idea of a national care service would have retained private profits, and would have given almost total control of care to the ministers. We successfully campaigned for a pause and a review of the bill that was published last year, but we're now just days away from the bill coming back to Parliament to continue its process of becoming law. My guest this week is Nick Kemp, convener of our Care Reform Group, here to talk about our new briefing and what has happened to the bill while it was paused and what needs to happen next. Hello, Nick. Great to have you back on the show. Hi, Craig. So the National Care Service Bill has been a long time in the making, but in some senses it hasn't even really started yet. We first saw the first draft about 18 months ago now. Can you tell us briefly about that first bill and how it was such a disaster? Yes, I I think, as you said, it goes back to COVID. COVID exposed the flaws in the care system as never before. And basically, the care bill was designed to ignore everything that we'd learned in COVID. So what happened is under political pressure to create a national care service in response to COVID, uh, the Scottish government commissioned a feely to produce an independent care review, just looking at adults, not looking at all people who needed care. And his remit explicitly excluded any consideration of lessons from covid partly, I think, because of the COVID inquiry was due to be held. But as a result, basically, he came up with an anemic set of uh, recommendations that basically built on previous attempts to reform adult social care with nothing new. Um, and, And that basically is why the bill was so flawed. It was Uh, a confirmation of the existing system, um, but also it was a continue, it allowed the Scottish government to continue with its previous agendas. And a big one of those was the integration of health and care, which for 20 years has been held out as the magical solution to all the problems in the care system was if only health and care could work more effectively together. Um, So what we got in the bill basically was an idea to scrap local authorities completely, all right, and uh, create new integrated bodies uh, and uh, under the power of Scottish ministers. And so actually, uh, and what all that did was centralise care even further. There's been a gradual process of centralising care over the last 20 years, and the bill, in a sense, represented the culmination of all that policy. We, along with the, the STUC and other stakeholders in the um, in the sector, successfully campaigned for a pause to the bill last year, which then led to a period of reflection, review, and co-design. What have been the outcomes of that? Uh, really, very, very little. 
Um, what the one thing that has happened is that the Scottish government was forced to come to the table with local authorities, and they signed something called the Verity House Agreement, in which they uh, acknowledged that local authorities should continue to have a role in care provision, whereas previously the idea was all local authority staff and so on were going to be transferred to these new care boards under ministerial control. So the Scottish government has been forced to backtrack, although the details of that, uh, what that means in terms of the bill have not yet uh, been made public. Um, and apart from that, really, the Scottish government has hasn't changed their approach at all but what they have done is they've employed lots and lots of new staff to do uh, so-called consultation. I think there's over 120 of them at the latest count. Has, well, but while the government hasn't really changed its approach, um, there has been a significant change on the part of stakeholders in the NCS. And so what's happened um, uh, is that the trade unions, which... Uh, uh, were always sceptical about the bill. I think their opposition has hardened, and actually many of them are calling now for the bill to be entirely scrapped. But what's also very significant is that the groups representing service users and carers, right, have increasingly become disillusioned with the co-design process that took place last year. They feel their voices haven't been felt, uh, haven't been listened to. And as a result, the degree of public opposition to what's being proposed in this bill is uh, higher than it's ever been before. Mm, I, I certainly recall uh, attending the, the, the first stakeholder meeting uh, of the various parties, which Commonweal is, is, is a part of that stakeholder process. Um, this was the first meeting after the Verity House agreement was was signed, and I recall very vividly that the the representative from the 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 NHS was particularly annoyed at the way that that agreement came about because the agreement says that the the care service will now be controlled by a, a tripartite process of the government, uh, COSLA, the, the represent the local authorities and the NHS. But the NHS rep at that meeting said the NHS had not been consulted in this. They weren't part of the planning process. This looked as if it was an agreement purely between the government and COSLA and that they were being pulled in to be the kingmaker or kingbreaker in any decision. Um, so, yeah, not the most democratic of processes and certainly none of the stakeholders had been involved in how that agreement had been shaped and formed. It just came out of the ether from behind the closed doors. I, I think it's worth perhaps saying here, we've started to have a look at the COVID inquiry and some of the evidence that's coming out on that's very interesting. I mean, that from Jean Freeman basically showed that she did not consult uh, during COVID at all. Local authorities had no place at the table at all in terms of managing the crisis, in terms of care, although they were responsible for most of it. And instead, Scottish ministers went to health staff or to the private sector in the form of Donald McCaskill, who's the chief executive of Scottish Care for Advice. So these um, failures in the in the care crisis, if you like, actually were carried through into the proposed structure of the National Care Service. Now, the Care Service Bill, as I said, is going to end its pause soon. It's due back, back in Parliament, possibly within uh, a couple of weeks. Are we expecting it to have changed much as a result of the pause in the co-design process? No. Well, 
Uh, no, uh, we, we in fact know that it won't be changed at all um, because what's happened, and although some of the uh, health care and sport committee uh, meetings that have been considering this have been held in private, we know that members of that committee have been asking the Scottish government to say uh, what changes they're proposing. And they've actually confirmed, first of all, that there's no changes in the bill, right? So the committee's considering the old bill, but they won't reveal what changes they're going to make in uh, at after the stage one reading of the bill. So the Scottish government has absolutely refused to release any information about what amendments it's choosing to make, even though its agreement with COSLA means that whole large sections of the bill need to be scrapped. That's a completely unprecedented constitutional uh, position for Scotland, and it creates, in terms of the Scottish Parliament, something of a constitutional crisis. Yeah, I guess it's worth uh, sort of explaining to listeners the, the, the process of how bills move through the Parliament. They, they usually move through in a three-stage process. Stage one is generally very procedural. It's just, here's the bill, should we should we move forward on this? Um, there, there's generally not much scope for changing a bill in that stage one process. It's just, should we debate it, should we not? And if it gets a yes, which they generally do, it then moves to stage two, where amendments are put forward, they're debated on, the committees uh, discuss it, and they, they, they bring the, the bill into, into a, a more agreeable shape, it gets voted on. And then stage three, there is some scope for further amendments, but generally that's more of a confirmation of, right, we're now happy with the bill as is, should it become law. Um, so in most cases, you wouldn't normally expect much amendment at stage one. But this is an extraordinary situation because we have had that pause, we have had that co-design, we have had that acceptance that this stage one bill was completely insufficient and had to be radically changed. But we're now in the position of not knowing what the government wants those changes to look like until we start this almost irrevocable process of, of the legislation becoming law. Now, there are some voices saying, actually, we should see what the government actually now wants to do with the care service in stage one before we consider moving forward and further amending. Yes, and I mean, in relation to that, and what I think is very important is the bill was uh, paused to allow further consultation through this co-design process, and the Scottish government hasn't clarified whether it intends at stage two to put any amendments to change the bill as a result of that consultation. So it looks at the moment, right, and just from the lack of information, that the whole of that co-design process is not going to change anything about the bill at all, uh, which raises the question of why bother to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think in terms of the idea of the bill being co-designed, that is a major issue. And it's worth also saying here that we know that um, Ivan McKee, who's an SMP MSP on the committee, has asked the government for the target operating model uh, for the new service. Uh, what happened was the Scottish government at the beginning of the process uh, uh, commissioned a management consultancy, KPMG, to, to design a target operating model. Um, they refused to release that to 
Commonweal saying it was work still in progress, but they're now refusing to release that to the committee. So actually, we're in an extraordinary position that the Health and Social Care Committee is uh, having to consider this without really knowing what the government is proposing. So we mentioned that there are some voices calling for the bill to be scrapped entirely. Um, that's something that I personally would not want to see because it would... I wouldn't like to see the bill scrapped entirely and not, and we'd lose the chance of creating this national care service altogether. But there is a is there a possibility that the bill could be scrapped and then started again with all of the co-design work uh, incorporated into it? Well, I think that's always a possibility. I mean, the Scottish government, and in fact, what they could have done and probably should have done was to have withdrawn the bill instead of pausing it. They should have withdrawn it consulted and then put a new revised bill back to the Scottish Parliament and we wouldn't be in the position we are now. Um, uh, in terms of where we are at the moment, it's obviously up to the Scottish Parliament to decide on the process. Um, but I think the point I would make about the current bill is that actually for the current bill to be properly amended and be made fit for purpose would probably take six months, right? There is, it's so wrong in so many respects, would need a large, large number of amendments. That time period is unprecedented, but we think actually that the Scottish government may only be allowing four weeks. Now, it's quite impossible in such a short time scale to put uh, a whole lot of amendments to the bill. It simply can't happen. Um, so um, the, 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 there is no doubt there is now a massive crisis in terms of what this bill is going to do. Yeah, especially when you say when you say four weeks, that's not four weeks of the entire parliament working every day on this on this bill. This is probably three, four, five, maybe six afternoons worth of debate, plus whatever goes on in the background. It's, it's not a full-time job. They have other bills to work on as well. Yes. And no MSP on those the Health and Social Care and Sport Committee is going to have a chance to look at more than one or two things in that time period. It's absolutely impossible. So um, they're in a very, very difficult position. So that brings us to the briefing that we published this week, some some information that we've sent to all of the MSPs in the Parliament ahead of the, the stage one debate for the bill. Why did we write this? Well, the focus at the moment in terms of the bill has all been on the constitutional process. Right? Various uh, committees of the Scottish Parliament have expressed lots of concerns, not just health and social care, but also finance, for example, and also on the agreement with COSLA and what this means for local government. Right, And, and, and that's not clear. Uh, the issue is that there's a large number of other weaknesses in the bill. We didn't want them to get lost. So what we've done is we've basically produced a, a, a short account of 10 other main shortcomings in the bill, which we think need to be addressed in what's possibly a four-week period. Hmm. I don't think we've got entirely enough time on this podcast to go through all 10, but can you pick out a few of them and, and we can talk through uh, a few of those changes that we want to see? Yeah. Well, we started with a statement of purpose. 
There is nothing in the bill to say what a national care service should be for. Right? That's completely extraordinary. We know what the health service for, is for. It's to provide health care to the population. So why can't we say the same for a national care service? There is no statement of purpose. There is no statement of the scope of the national care service. So there are still questions, for example, about whether children's services would be included at a later date or not. It's just simply unclear. So it's actually um, worth just reading out that purpose. That, uh, the, the purpose of the National Care Service is to promote a caring society, support those who provide care informally through caring relationships, and to provide care directly where it is needed from womb to tomb. Yes. And and our second our second point in the briefing was about the principles. Some of the principles for the National Care Service are all right, but we think there are some major gaps. And the three main things that, of which there's no mention at all um, is that care provision should be free at the point of need, like health, as the statement that care services should be not for profit, um, which we think is fundamental, and a statement that basically uh, care should be founded on collection of information about unmet need in the population so that actually the National Care Service basically has a duty to meet the care needs of the population. Those are three major gaps which aren't in the principles. We've also highlighted that although fair work is mentioned in the principles, actually there is no firm commitment to sorting out uh, pay and conditions of care staff, which is absolutely fundamental, and no new structures for uh, pay proposed in the National Care Service. Now, in the NHS, for example, there's something called Agenda for Change. It's negotiated with the unions. It sets out the, the paying conditions of all staff apart from doctors in the, the in the NHS, right? It's an accepted way of treating staff, right? Um, but actually, there was an opportunity to set up something similar for a national care service, but there's no mention of that. And another so, uh, one of our principles discusses the, something that the Scottish Government does talk a lot about, uh, and that is rights, including the right to care. Uh, can you talk a bit about how, how we're approaching that? We've always been quite critical of this rights-based approach. Uh, the Scottish Government's proposing a charter of rights without creating any new rights. And actually, rights are fairly meaningless unless they're enforceable, right? So rights, we say, can't be considered without responsibility. So who's responsible for meeting those rights? And that actually then brings in questions of resources, right? Mm. So um, so we've argued for a long time that actually you, you can't consider rights without uh, uh, um uh, considering responsibilities, resources, and the relationships. That's the fourth R, which actually make all of that work. Mm. And that, that's how, that is a really important part of this, because we, we are often a little bit trite when we, when we say a right's not a right unless you know who goes to jail if it's broken. Um, yeah. But it's not just about that. Um, it is about who do you call to make sure that your right is upheld. If you don't know how to ensure that your right is upheld. If you don't know the process of getting that care that you have the right to, then it's not really a right, is it? No. And a perfect illustration of that is actually that the bill 
creates sort of two new rights, and one's called Anne's Law, and that came out of the COVID crisis and pressure from uh, carers to be able to go and have a right to go and see their relatives in care homes. And uh, in COVID, that got mired in lots of procedures and uh, and actually became impossible for carers to visit people, uh, loved ones in care homes, even when they were dying and so on. And actually what's proposed is a similar, very bureaucratic process that's completely unenforceable. So uh, the carers don't won't have any new rights under the bill as it's currently legislated to actually go to someone and say, this care home stopping me visiting, please intervene and uphold my right. That's simply not there. There's no mechanism for enforcing the rights at all. And one of the other principles that I really want to draw is this idea of transition, because if we're going to have this big change, you know, the most dramatic change in the social sector possibly since the NHS, uh, and especially if we're going from a a highly privatised, profit-driven care sector to a publicly owned, not-for-profit sector, we are going to have to talk about the transition between the two. What does the bill say about that? Uh, Nothing. (laughs) Um, Basically, everything is left with Scottish ministers to produce various statutory instruments, that's subsidiary laws under the legislation. But what actually uh, Scottish ministers might do under that is unclear. Um, So we simply don't know what the transitional arrangements would be. And that, I think, is linked to it. Currently, there there are no clear timescales, really, for when a national care service might come into being. Um, there is a commitment to, to, to set up the legislation and get it sort of done by the end of this parliament, but that's that's really it in terms of, of timescales for changing things. Mm-hmm. And especially because we have had that pause, time is somewhat running out. Uh, we've only got a little over two years before we hit that, that deadline and less when you consider everything will start focusing on the election long before then. What are the dangers if we don't get a national care service off the ground in this parliament? Um, For example, the Conservatives have already scrapped their plans for an English national care service, and Keir Starmer seems to have U-turned on his plans for care service as well just in the last week or two. Could this put pressure against having a care service in Scotland at all? Yes, well, it could. Well, it could result in a political reluctance not to pursue a national care service at all. I think the situation is slightly more complicated because the SNP has committed to deliver a national care service and actually, uh, uh, and so has Labour, and neither have reneged, if you like, on that policy. So it might delay the creation of a national care service, but I don't think it would be off the political agenda as such. And I think it's perhaps worth observing here that actually, although uh, Starmer, as on many things, has reversed his commitment right to create a, a national care service in, uh, in England, uh, it's possible that Labour might see uh, that actually if they're going to do this in a a new parliament, that, that they would support the creation of a national care service in Scotland as a way of trying out how it might work, mm. right? This is a sort of a poll tax in reverse, if you like. Um, uh, so I think that's a possibility. So I don't think, uh, you know, where 
we're sort of care people interested in care systems are not politicians or political speculators, but I wouldn't say at the moment. I mean, the thing is, the idea of a national care service still has a lot of popular support. And as a result, all the political parties are going to be on some sort of under pressure to do something. And if I can just say, given what's going on in care at the moment with massive cuts facing councils like Glasgow and Edinburgh, right? And we're talking seven, over 70 million in Glasgow, over 60 million in Edinburgh, right? The care crisis is going to get worse. And this just isn't going to go away. They need, the politicians need to do something. Mm -hmm. I think you've probably just put the fear up a lot of listeners by mentioning the P word and <laughs> Scotland doesn't exactly have a good history of being using as a test bed for uh, for policies for the rest of the UK <laughs> but actually I hope that this could be a positive example of that where Scotland could show the benefits of this kind of policy and and, and use that to encourage uh, its, its adoption elsewhere. What are the next stages for our care campaign? Well we need to see what happens obviously in the in the next week uh if the uh bill does go to a first reading and gets through that obviously our focus will be on trying to get support for amendments that implement the suggestions we've made in that briefing and that will be our absolute priority um if for some reason the uh uh the, the bill is rejected, right? We still think there are other things that we would uh, can do in the short term, and indeed we're doing work on that now. Um, there are two things I would like to highlight. The first is about uh, getting profit out of care, right? We don't need a national care service bill to start phasing profit out of care. The Scottish government has the power to um, amend the uh, uh statutory instruments that govern how services are registered and basically to phase out profit services. They've done it for foster care. They could do it for other services. And local authorities could also, if they were properly resourced, take services back in-house, right, which would meet and, and pay staff decently. So getting profit out of care so that the money, care money is properly invested in the workforce is one of our big uh, priorities. Uh, the other thing that we would say, and we recognise the financial crisis at the moment, we've been doing a lot of work about trying to get rid of the bureaucracy in care. And, and this is actually it comes down to a fundamental criticism of the Scottish government's proposals. They think that the way to improve care is top-down improvement. So managers instructing staff what to do. We've got a completely different model. What we think is that staff at the front line need to be empowered to make decisions, right, and to undertake their work. That's both social workers who are enmeshed in, I'm an ex-social worker, and there's just so much bureaucracy governing what they can do. They're really not free to act, but also care staff to take individual decisions on a day-to-day -day basis of, of how they care, rather than being controlled by remote technology and all that sort of stuff which is going on at the moment. So we would like to see PAD evolved. And what's really encouraging in that respect is that Social Work Scotland and the Scottish Association of Social Workers and Unison, who basically represent staff working in the care system, uh, put out a report um, just over a week ago on 
uh, the need to reform care management. And what we think is really, it's, it's really great now that people who are working in the care system are seriously talking about actually the need to reform the way people work and empower staff to actually care for people properly. Yeah. And I'd also just like to mention that we also have a Stranda campaign actually focusing on freedom of, in freedom of information, which also might impact the care sector, because what we'd like to see um, freedom of information law extended to areas where public money is being used by private companies. And that directly affects a lot of places where, for example, a local authority has tendered care out to a private care company. So opening that up to freedom of information, we can start to see how much they're actually getting paid for their services and maybe start to see if that is value for money. And, and, and that, Craig, uh, and the listeners may be very interested to know that it's over two years now since I, we put in a freedom of information request to the Scottish government to establish exactly why KPMG were engaged to design the National Care Service when actually the UK government had suspended them from bidding from all contracts, right? we That appeal has now been with the Freedom of Information Commissioner for two years, but I'm quietly optimistic that they'll decide the right thing in the end. They're no, no doubt under lots of pressure not to do so. So um, freedom of information is really... Uh, you know, Transparency, and it's the wider point, is we need transparency about the care system. We need transparency about how money's being spent. There's a lot of money still being misspent, right? And we just don't understand how that works. The Scottish government has lots of what I would call slush funds for care, which get put out often to supporters in voluntary organisations. Um, that actually uh, probably contributes more than anything to the postcode lottery of care in Scotland, right? Because we just don't know that that money is being allocated fairly. So we would like transparency about things like money. And we think that is absolutely fundamental to designing a better care system. Well, I can say I'm sure that we'll all be looking at the amendments when they come back, when the bill comes back into Parliament. We'll be deeply engaged in the process. You will well see what we are reading about and talking about uh, as 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 we publish it. Until then, you can download our briefing from the policy library on our website. I'll stick a link in the description of the show. And if you want to support us further with our campaign, I'll put a link to our broader campaign website for the care service. And I would highly encourage you to talk to all of your MSPs, find out their views on it and canvas them and, and press them. To say, send them a copy of our, our uh, blueprint for a national care service, Caring for All, and tell them this is the care service that you, you want and you think Scotland deserves. And with that, maybe we can get the change that, that we need from this bill. Thank you, Nick, once again for coming on to the show. It's been great chatting to you and I'm looking forward to the campaign ahead. Well, th thank you, Craig, and thanks for all the support for from uh, people in Commonweal for what the Care Reform Group's been doing. It's much appreciated. And I'll just finish the show as I always do by reminding folk that Commonweal as an organisation is entirely funded by our donors and supporters who give us an average of about £10 a month. We don't get government money, certainly not for this campaign. We don't get private money, certainly not from the private care companies based in those tax havens. And we don't even have adverts on our website. So if you would like to support our policies, our campaigns and this podcast, then please click the donate link in the description of the show. Thanks once again to my guest. Thank you to all of my listeners. And I'll speak to you again next week. <laughs>